All right. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Question Field. I am Brian. I am joined, as always, by... Campbell. That's me. And one other guest. Very exciting. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, so... Without further ado, why don't we just uh, jump into the introductions? So, I'd like to introduce Maria Violaris. Maria and I know each other through the student contributing uh, members of uh, Physics World, which is like an online publication that we both write for every now and again in our spare time. Yeah, so so this is how we met, and I'm uh, aware of uh, Maria's other science communication work, which I find very intriguing and interesting. So, this is why I wanted to get her on. But could we hand the, f- the floor over to you, maybe, Maria, and you could perhaps just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks for the intro and thanks for inviting me onto the podcast. No, oh, thank you. Thank you for coming. Um, yeah, so an intro into, <laughs> I guess, what, what I'm doing in general is that I'm a PhD student doing research into the foundations of quantum physics at Oxford. And yeah, my research is very much on the kind of fundamental aspects of quantum physics, partly looking at things like why we have a direction of time going in in one direction, Um, partly looking at things like quantum paradoxes and working out how everything actually makes sense despite some aspects of quantum physics looking paradoxical. So I think of that. Just the simple things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I see it as like stuff. paradox busting. Of a... <laughs> Is it paradox busting? Do you sort of take a paradox and say, oh, don't worry, the world still works? Or do you come up with paradoxes? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's kind of a mix. Yeah, I like to to look at a paradox and work out why everything's okay and why we don't need to to worry about it but sometimes along the way i'll end up coming up with a a thought experiment to test a particular idea um and then investigate something using that thought experiment but yeah i think for most things quantum physics makes a lot of sense once you Mm -hmm. look at everything properly yeah Oh, fantastic. So, I mean, it sounds like a fascinating research area. And you also, of course, do a lot of work um, in sort of science communication as well. Is, uh, are you able to sort of explain a little bit about what you've had experience in in that field? Yeah. Um, yeah, I've always really enjoyed science communication, giving talks and presentations and things. So then I started, um, yeah, I made a, a video about quantum computing during an internship I did with Riverlane, um, which was kind of like quantum education focused. And I made this Raspberry Pi quantum computing lab and then made a video about it. And then kind of carried on making videos after that um, with IBM Quantum for the Kiss Kit YouTube channel. And the idea of those videos, uh, it's an ongoing video series where I've I've made five um, so far on that playlist. I've got nine more coming up. Oh, wow. Wow. That's very exciting. (laughs) Yeah, essentially doing paradox busting by taking uh, a quantum paradox and then explaining what the thought experiment is and how to make sense of it using the ideas behind quantum computing. And yeah, that's pretty 
pretty fun making those videos. Fantastic. And we will have everything in the show notes. So uh, Maria, whatever you want to send us that you'd <laughs> like for us to share, please uh, hit us up with that and we will get it out there. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I guess the idea for this this podcast, usually we, we sort of base the podcasts around a, a question, um, potentially one that somebody has written in. Uh, so I guess the question for today, I don't know, do you have an idea, Brian, what's, <laughs> what we're going to call this episode? It could be something like, um, why does quantum mechanics actually make sense despite all, all apparent reasons to the contrary? <laughs> you like, Campbell has a really, uh, fun time of trying to see how many words we can fit onto my little Chiron <laughs> when I make our social media posts. Uh, yeah, let's go with that one. end up with <laughs> hundreds of words of essay <laughs> with a question mark at the end. It's, the, the font is just going to get smaller. And, <laughs> right. and smaller. Yeah. yeah. So, so we were hoping to speak to you, Maria, about uh, quantum paradoxes and, you know, the, the whole area of quantum mechanics, obviously, um, is sort of rife with paradoxes because, well, quote unquote paradoxes, right? Because uh, I guess it sort of arises whenever you try and use your classical intuition to try and understand something which is inherently non-classical. So, I mean, is there a, a good starting point that we could jump into? So, if like a you, your run-of-the-mill paradox that uh, could reveal something about uh, quantum mechanics? Yeah, probably the best starting point is the the most famous quantum paradox that so many people have heard of that it's kind of become a meme in uh in popular culture which is schrodinger's cat of the the cat being dead and alive at, at the same time and that's often said to be a paradox because one way of saying it is that it seems like schrodinger's cat can be dead and alive at the same time but in everyday life we never see cats being dead and alive and that's the idea of the paradox mm -hmm. so yeah, I, I could give a kind of summary of what the paradox is in case a listener has not come across it. Sure, that'd be great. Sure, please. Thank the you. kind of original setting of it is that we imagine having a, a cat in a box and it's trapped in there with a radioactive atom which may or may not decay. And mm -hmm. if it decays, then it will release a small hammer to smash open a vial of poison and that will kill the cat inside the box. But if the atom doesn't decay, then the cat will stay alive because the poison will never be smashed open. And the quantum twist is that, according to quantum mechanics, the radioactive atom can be in a superposition of being decayed and not decayed, meaning that it's somehow decayed and not decayed at the same time. And if you treat everything in the box using quantum mechanics. So you say, oh, I can describe my hammer using quantum mechanics. I can describe my vial of poison using quantum mechanics, and I can describe my cat using quantum mechanics. Then if everything in the box is described by quantum mechanics, what you end up saying is that if the atom decayed and didn't decay at the same time, then the hammer did and did not smash the poison open. The poison did and did not kill the cat. So the cat is both dead and alive inside the box. But we know that every time we actually see cats, they're 
dead or alive and we never see <laughs> anything be in this weird dead and alive state and that is what Schrodinger was trying to show the the absurdity of applying quantum mechanics to large objects like cats because it seems to lead to this phenomenon that we we don't see in everyday life when dealing with objects like cats. Ironically the the sort of dissemination of this idea, the, the memification of uh, Schrodinger's cat has made it much less absurd because we're all much more used to this concept of a cat that's dead and alive now. So what's your take on it then? Do you, do you feel like there's, that we just have to accept that the world is quantum and that, you know, there can be superpositions of dead and alive cats? Or do you think that there's, uh, you know, some question mark surrounding uh, you know, where, where quantum mechanics maybe breaks down or turns into classical physics. Yeah, my take on it is that I don't think the idea of a cat being dead and alive at the same time is a paradox in itself because of the fact it's absurd. I think the the paradox is why do we never see cats being dead and alive at the same time? And that's the bit that needs explaining or resolving to make this not a paradox anymore. Mm-hmm. I think we have good explanations for why we don't see cats being dead and alive at the same time, which is the fact that, so often you'll, in explanations of quantum mechanics, people will say, when an observer looks at the cat, it collapses into being either dead or alive, and that this is a kind of fundamental property of quantum mechanics is this collapse of things from suppositions into just one of one state when when an observer looks at it and people kind of say that looking at it is really important somehow Mm -hmm. i think this kind of seems really weird like why would an observer be so important um and what actually resolves the paradox is not that observation causing collapses this fundamental quantum extra rule in quantum mechanics but it's actually that if anything from outside the box kind of interacts with the cat, then it will join in this supposition of the the atom and the hammer and the poison and the cat. Once that happens, then the cat kind of behaves as though it's dead or alive rather than behaving as though it's both at once. So when you... Mm-hmm. You can also apply this to the observer because once an observer opens the box, they join into that supposition and become. There's a version of the observer seeing the cat dead and a version of the observer seeing the cat alive. But it's actually not even special to an observer, just a single particle interacting with the cat in that box would also join in that supposition and have the same effect. So, um, Mm. yeah. Some people don't like this this idea of there being multiple copies of, of you seeing the cat dead and alive, but it's at least doesn't have the, the paradoxicalness of, of seeing. Um, it has a way of explaining why we never see cats dead and alive at the same time. Sure. Yeah, so th- this is kind of like a, a many worlds interpretation um kind of answer to the paradox, I guess. Is that, would, would you say, that, say that's fair? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, yeah, so the many worlds interpretation says that if we treat observers as being quantum mechanical, then, 
yeah, they'll behave in this way where one of them will see a dead cat, one version of you will see an alive cat if you've looked inside the box, and these multiple copies of you are like kind of like multiple worlds. Um, although this explanation in general of treating the environment around the box as, as being described by quantum mechanics isn't specifically... There are, there are other theories as well as many worlds that mm-hmm. are consistent with, with this idea and a more, a more general way of dividing the, the kind of explanations for Schrodinger's cat is the ones that say that there's a collapse so that the cat becomes kind of irreversibly fixed into being dead or alive. And then there's the ones that say there's no collapse, meaning that the cat ultimately stays being dead and alive simultaneously, even if it doesn't look that way to the observer. And Many Worlds is one of those no collapse theories and something like the Copenhagen interpretation, which says that an observer looking at a cat causes an irreversible collapse, that would be in the collapse batch of of theories. Yeah, it, it sort of retains some of its flavor of a paradox in that it makes all of us kind of confront our assumptions about quantum mechanics a little bit. It's 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 like, um, yeah, it, it, it kind of, for, for somebody who believes in a collapse type of interpretation, so something like the, the Copenhagen interpretation, where a measurement or an observation sort of causes the uh, the particle to be located here and only here, for example, as opposed to somewhere else, it sort of makes you confront this question of, okay, well, when does that collapse occur and why does it occur and that kind of thing. So, as a, or or on the other hand, if if you're, um, yeah, if you're a fan of decoherence ideas and and sort of removing the collapse from the, uh, from the theory, then it, and then it sort of forces you to swallow the fact that, yes, you have these very crazy sounding ideas that are true according to your interpretation of the theory. Yeah, I mean, I think that in a way the the Copenhagen interpretation, I mean, my, my personal view is that it shouldn't actually count as an interpretation because it doesn't actually <laughs> tell you like when this collapse is supposed to happen. So it doesn't, mm-hmm. there's no definitive answer of whether the the hammer can be in a superstition yeah. of being of having smashed the poison and not smashed it and whether the poison can be in that superstition and whether the cat can be in that superstition whether an observer right, can exactly yeah and so um i think what thinking about this problem which yeah is kind of known as the measurement problem of of quantum mechanics um i think when you think about it deeply enough, you become forced to kind of abandon the Copenhagen interpretation and say, okay, if I'm going to think about collapse, I need to pick a specific theory which tells me how that collapse happens. And that's when you get things like objective collapse theories, which give you specific mm. conditions of when that collapse would happen, which you can then use to determine whether or not your theory says that you're allowed to put hammers in superstitions and then you can experimentally test whether you physically can put these larger and larger objects in superstitions to to test those theories, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, which um, which are sort of like not quite interpretations as uh, as well either, are they? Because they they sort of add something on top of quantum mechanics that isn't already there. Yeah, yeah, I think they 
they're different theories rather than interpretations, mm. but the the word interpretation has kind of stuck to to thinking about these ideas yeah. for historical yeah. reasons in a way. Yeah, I guess just to just to defend Copenhagen a little bit, um, <laughs> I, I guess they it comes at the at the whole wave function thing from a little bit of a different point of view, right? It it tends to be a little bit more uh, epistemic in its philosophy, I think. Thinking of the wave function as describing something about our state of knowledge and what we can know about the um, about the system, as opposed to uh, what is sort of objectively uh, characterizing the system. So it's sort of like, well, where does the collapse happen? Where do you want it to happen? I mean, <laughs> it's like uh, you you can sort of draw the line anywhere because it's uh, it's sort of about the accuracy with which we can know certain things. I think. I mean, maybe maybe that's not a fair characterization. Yeah, I I think that that's the type of approach in like cubism, where mm-hmm. it's kind of yeah, it kind of says that that yeah you you can have like knowledge of a quantum state or that um yeah the quantum state is not a fundamental physical mm-hmm. entity and it's more about retrieving information about it is what is central to the to where collapse appears. To happen um but yeah i guess that there's this whole philosophical issue of whether you're a, a realist or a non-realist mm. and the the realists would say we kind of we want theories our theories should describe physical reality and that's what makes them good theories they're like our best guesses at what physical reality is um mm-hmm. and if you're a, a not non-realist or using that philosophy then that might say that we can't guess at what physical reality actually is and we can just i don't know improve our predictions of how well we can predict things for example right right yeah i think i'd probably fall into the the realist camp yeah yeah i mean i guess i I think i I think i remember reading Feynman. i could be getting this wrong i think it was I think Feynman said something along the lines of, like, in in response to the question of instrumentalism versus realism. Instrumentalism being, you know, just uh, something along the lines of, and I'm not a philosopher, so I'm probably going to bungle this, but something along the lines of the value, like the the worth of a scientific theory is not about how well it describes some sort of adri- objective reality. We don't have access to that. All it's good for is is sort of how well it performs in in providing predictions and how useful it is in some sense. Um, and he says, well, yeah, but uh, nobody does science from an in- instrumentalist motivation. You know, nobody says, oh, well, uh, I'm going to study this because it's going to allow me to, p- to predict things with 10% better accuracy. Uh, you know, <laughs> that would be absurd and, and um, like horrendously depressing. So people do science because they believe that it has some bearing on objective reality and allows us to understand something about the world. <laughs> well, so now that we've um, uh, warmed up a little bit uh, with, with, with Schrodinger's cat and gotten nicely sidetracked in, in philosophy, should we, should we jump into a different paradox? Yeah. Um, well, there's a, a thought experiment. It's, it's not so much a paradox as a, a thought experiment um, related to what we were just talking about about mm-hmm. well we we mentioned this idea of are these different interpretations or are these different theories of of quantum yeah. mechanics and historically 
it might have seemed like these were different philosophical interpretations of whether there's this irreversible collapse or whether there isn't and that it all leads to the same predictions. And so it's a philosophical question, not a scientific question. Um, mm-hmm. But what I think is, is really cool is that there's a, a thought experiment that David Deutsch came up with in an attempt to give a way of testing b- between the many worlds interpretation and uh, Copenhagen interpretation in the sense of testing between um, observation causing an irreversible collapse and causing no collapse at all. And essentially what this thought experiment rests on, just explaining it in in my words, is that Mm -hmm. you imagine an observer measuring some quantum system that's in this supposition of of two states. Let's say it's a Let's say they have a a quantum coin which can be in a superposition of heads and tails at the same time. Then the observer looks at the coin and observes whether it's heads or tails. They see a single outcome. And we imagine that we are an experimenter that has control over this observer. Um, So, yeah, we could imagine imagine that you, Campbell, are in a lab um, flipping this quantum coin and, and measuring it and then I've got access to some controls over this this lab and and you and the coin. Sounds like a terrifying proposition. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> Very intense. <laughs> then all you have in this room is you have a yeah, you have a pen and paper. Um mm-hmm. and you write down once you've measured your coin, you don't write down whether you got heads or tails, but you write down I definitely made a measurement or I, Campbell, definitely made a measurement and you sign it mm-hmm. so that we know that that's you and it's your handwriting and everything. And um, you have this evidence on this piece of paper that you definitely made that measurement. Um, and then you can imagine like you slip that paper under the door and I then have that that piece of, of evidence that you made the measurement um, from outside the mm-hmm. lab. And then what I do as the controller of the experiment is I attempt to reverse your measurement of the quantum system, so of this quantum coin. And because I have full quantum control over the lab containing you and the coin. Mm. And then what happens is if your observation did not cause the coin to irreversibly collapse if everything was reversible then Mm. i can successfully reverse you and the coin and i i like to imagine that the coin began like spinning clockwise and then you measured it and saw heads or tails and then if the reversing happens successfully then the coin will be back to spinning clockwise and then i can check at the end of the experiment whether the coin returned to spinning clockwise and if it did then I successfully reversed the measurement and everything. And there, that's evidence for no collapse having happened. But if you observing the coin actually irreversibly put it into either heads or tails, then what would happen is that half the time the coin would go back to clockwise, half the time it would go back to anti-clockwise to the direction it's spinning. And then if I then check whether it's clockwise or anti-clockwise, and I repeat this lots of times, then half the time I'll get one outcome, half the time the other. Mm -hmm. 
And that way I can deduce that there was an irreversible collapse when you did your measurement. And so armed with these results, if, if I get the same outcome each time of clockwise, then I can, you can come out of this lab, you won't remember anything about what you measured because you've been completely reversed. But I can show you this piece of paper giving you evidence that you definitely made a measurement. And I can show you the results showing that it was reversible. I managed to reverse it. Even though your memory was erased, you still have this, this evidence of having made a measurement. And so this is a way of experimentally testing whether or not you actually cause a collapse or not. That's, that sounds very intriguing. <laughs> So, wow, interesting. So I, I guess just for some added context, quantum mechanics has these two, well, in the sort of general, generally kind of accepted and, and uh, taught formulation of quantum mechanics, there are sort of these two modes, right? When you're not looking at things, uh, everything evolves reversibly, uh, re- reversibly sorry, and, uh, and nice and smoothly and what we call unitarily. And when you do look, when you do make a measurement, then that's when you get this irreversibility. So this is why, yeah, this is why this reversibility is very important in the uh, in the in the thought experiment. Um, okay, interesting. What are your what are your takes on it? Uh, do you think that that this is um, do you, do you see do you see any issue with this thought experiment, or are you are you sold? <laughs> um, yeah, I think the thought experiment itself is is really good for being a way of distinguishing these, um, yeah, the idea of irreversible collapse and collapse. So yeah, it was thought of as a way of distinguishing many worlds and Copenhagen interpretation, but more broadly it's, yeah, distinguishes the collapse and, and no collapse. And um, I think the, the kind of question that comes up from this thought experiment is, well, what, what counts as my observer or what does it take to actually, what would I do to have, what would I have to do to actually do this experiment? What would I, and then the the kind of most extreme version is that you'd have to, um, if I actually wanted to have full quantum control over Campbell, then probably the best way of doing it would be to come up with a theory of, consciousness or something and create a simulation of of you and then have you running on on a computer and then the yeah so that's where the the idea of a quantum computer even though it wasn't called that at this stage was kind of proposed through this thought experiment because the because deutsch was trying to suggest ways of how you would actually implement it would be you know maybe we could use superconductors as logical equivalents of um physical systems and do some kind of simulation which has to be able to behave quantum mechanically to do this to simulate this measurement and reversing it um but yeah that would require a kind of fully fledged way of simulating an observer which we we can't do until we have a good theory of of conscious people or simulating people Mm. but we can um we can definitely do a lot of things on on the way to that. Like we can have the observer being a, something of a certain mass, for example, to test ideas of gravitational collapse against no collapse theories. And mm-hmm. we could have the observer being something of a certain complexity to test 
an idea that a certain level of complexity causes collapse, or we could push the boundary up to the kind of smallest possible living system to test if something being living causes collapse or not. And so, um, yeah, basically what the observer is in this thought experiment depends on what the collapse theory is that you're testing against, and you have to make it meet the requirements of the thing that's supposed to cause this collapse to happen. I see. So something that I, I find um, somewhat confusing about this thought experiment is when when I write down my, well, when I write down whether or not I've made the measurement and I pass that slip of paper through the door, that seems as though you're in- extracting some information out of the out of the room, which is kind of what a measurement is, right? Even though you're not measuring the coin itself. Yeah, that's a good question. So the kind of key insight here is that the thing you write on the piece of paper reveals that you definitely made a measurement, but it doesn't reveal any information about the measurement outcome that you got. So it doesn't Mm -hmm. reveal anything about whether you got heads or tails. If it did reveal even the slightest bit of information about whether you got heads or tails, then this reversal me trying to reverse the the lab, reversing your measurement wouldn't work because I would still have a bit of that information outside the lab and that Mm. would have um, essentially caused this effective apparent collapse because um, Mm -hmm. that's the kind of source of decoherence is a little bit of information leaking out of the the controlled environment and not being able to, to take that into account anymore. So what happens in this case is that I I do measure the fact that you made a measurement and I I store my my evidence of that but um but it doesn't interfere with reversing you doing the measurement so mm-hmm. I don't actually reverse everything because if I reversed everything then I would also reverse you writing on this piece of paper that you yeah. got this measurement so so I don't reverse the bit of you recording that you got a single outcome. Um, but yeah, even with that, that piece of evidence, I can still reverse the, the important bit for, for getting the coin back to the supposition it, it started off in um, with the heads and tails at the same time. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so it's, it's if there was any, like, if the, if the result of my measurement influenced it, how I wrote down, yes, I made a measurement at all, then that wouldn't be possible. Sort of like this leaking of information outside of the uh, outside of the lab. Yeah, that's right. So if if it turned out that you seeing heads made you feel happy and you feeling <laughs> happy means that your handwriting is better or something, then that could actually cause some issues for, for this experiment. Mm. So probably a better way of doing it would be that like there's a button you push for heads and a Mm. button you push for tails and it'll print out some generic thing that's um not dependent on on your your um not sensitive to slight changes in in your actions yeah yeah interesting do you know of proposals for performing a, a very simplified version of this experiment, for example, in a quantum computer? Like if we if we take our uh, our internal observer within the lab to be like a qubit or something along those lines, is that possible or is that too simplified? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we could already do a 
a kind of qubit version of this sort of experiment. And yeah, it kind of has been done, I think, with like, yeah, with yeah. small numbers of qubits in the sense of putting something in superposition. Yeah, I think kind of kind of simulations of this where the observers and qubit have been done. And I guess the, the idea of my IBM video, the Qiskit video, is that, well, the idea of all the videos is that I turn the thought experiments into quantum circuits, which are the way that we, a way of explaining how we run it on, on a quantum computer. And um, this particular thought experiment just needs a few qubits. Um, I think it's three something. Um, and not that many um, operations done on them. And it can, yeah, it becomes quite simple to, to do on a quantum computer, which, um, yeah, you can do on a simulator or on a yeah. cloud device that you can access. Um, so, yeah, people can do simulations of this at home if they, <laughs> if they okay. feel so inclined. But, um, yeah, I think probably the soonest one that would actually test this for a meaningful collapse theory will be with masses testing gravitational collapse. Right. right. Yeah, because I think everyone is convinced that qubits can be in superposition and their them kind of decohering in a very simplified way can be reversed if you've got control over over mm. everything. Yeah, exactly. We're we're not going to be sort of confirming or denying many worlds with five qubits, but <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Well, it would be very exciting if uh, some sort of gravitational uh, interaction and decoherence process was able to be reversed. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Well, what's uh, what, what's another um, interesting one that you've maybe talked about elsewhere? Yeah, I can tell you about one of my favorite ones. Um, I think one of the reason I reasons I like this one so much is that like. It feels kind of underrated that not that many people know about it, given how interesting of a thought experiment it is, um, which is the the quantum bomb tester. Fantastic. Is, is this going to involve me in a lab again, but am I going to be blown up this time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. Let's have you as the experimenter again, <laughs> dealing with Perfect. the bombs. The bombs. Yeah, so you can uh, imagine that I give you a box which may or may not have a bomb inside. <laughs> <laughs> and this bomb, this potential bomb, is sensitive to a single photon. So if a single photon or any single particle of anything interacts with it, then it will explode. And your challenge is to work out whether or not there is a bomb in the box without the bomb exploding. Certainly seems impossible. <laughs> yeah, so if if in your lab you only have classical equipment or you only have knowledge of, of classical physics, then unfortunately there is no way for you to figure out whether there's a bomb in the box without it exploding, because even if, like you could imagine um, trying to bounce something, throwing something into the box and seeing if it bounces off or not, um, but even if you do that with a single photon and see if the photon comes back to you or not, then it would be it would trigger this bomb to explode if it was there. So there's there's absolutely no way of working out if it's there without it exploding. Um, mm. If it is there, that's right. I didn't need to know anyway. 
<laughs> Not that fast. <laughs> Uh, but okay, but there's clearly a, a quantum method that does a bit better. Yeah, so the cool thing is that there is a quantum method of of doing a lot better, um, mm-hmm. which is that all you need is a photon and a beam splitter, which is like it's like a, a half silvered mirror. So if you send a, a, a photon, a single particle of light through a beam splitter, then it will split into an equal superposition of being reflected and going straight through. So it goes into this state of being um, in these two pathways at the same time of being reflected and transmitted through the beam splitter. So you're actually going to need two of those and two mirrors and two detectors as well. Um, And then what you do it's kind of hard to explain without a, a diagram, but... <laughs> the the perennial challenge of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've never had to explain this audio only, but uh, <laughs> have a go. We can always um, put some diagrams in the description if, uh, you know, uh, if if you want to refer to something that is not currently available for the, the listener, they can always find it down below. Cool. Well, I, I will refer to... My um, quantum bomb tester video, which has some cute animations <laughs> of, of this. Um, there you go. Very, very good plug. <laughs> yeah. I'll imagine that Campbell's in this lab and I'm trying to, I've got like a voiceover trying to explain to you how to, <laughs> to check whether this bomb is in the box. So yeah, what you have to do is get your, you have a source of single photons, you send a photon through a beam splitter. And then what you do is you put your box, which may have the bomb or not, into one pathway of the the beam splitter. So where the photon has split into these two pathways, you put the box in the way of one of the pathways. And then let's imagine that the box has little holes in it. So if the bomb is not there, then a photon would pass straight through this, this box um, because nothing would be blocking it. And if it passes straight through, then... Basically, you use the mirrors to divert these pathways of these two pathways of the photon back together, and then you make them meet at a second beam splitter. And when they meet, they'll merge and they'll just become like one beam again um, because of interference, like the same kind of uh, interference you get with water waves, like constructive interference between mm-hmm. these two two pathways of the photon and then you'll just you'll get um you put your detectors at the end after this second beam splitter and then you'll always detect that the beam has come out at the same place because um it's just merged the photons merged back into a single photon so that's what happens if there's no bomb in your box but if there is a bomb in your box then there'll be a 50 percent chance um so essentially, the bomb will like detect your photon and that will cause it to be projected into one of these two pathways because of this um, apparent collapse that, that happens. And either there's a 50% chance that the bomb will explode and unfortunately that's game over. Um, or there's a 50% chance that the photon ends up in the other pathway, not the one mm-hmm. with the bomb. And then when it reaches the bean splitter, um, the second bean splitter, it actually splits 50-50 
into two parts again because it doesn't have another part to interfere with. And then it will be detected half the time at one detector and half the time at the other because it's been split 50-50. And so if you ever detect the photon at the detector that it wouldn't go in if it was if it had merged back with itself, then you know for sure that the bomb was in your box with without having set off your bomb. So that's the that's the exciting outcome. It's the one where you've managed to work out that there is a bomb in the box with absolutely nothing interacting with your bomb, which seems like a paradox. It certainly does. So it's it's this if we if we use the language of measurement for for now uh although that might be insulting to many welders <laughs> um, <laughs> so it, it's this sort of measurement that has collapsed the location of the photon to the other arm of the of the beam um which which doesn't uh include this uh, bomb containing box um it's sort of this this like it seems like there's no interaction but it was sort of like in one branch of the wave function that that was where the interaction occurred and uh the interaction sort of produced this measurement which then collapsed the the state of the photon to now only be going in this like right hand arm for example of the uh of of the beam super super interesting yeah do you think it reveals something about uh about quantum mechanics yeah i think it's um i mean it's it's really strange and um like it's it's very paradoxical when well yeah it's very there's some ambiguity about the word paradoxical of whether you use it when something is like literally inconsistent or whether something just seems really weird yeah i think this definitely seems really weird like the idea that you can work out something is there with nothing interacting with it and mm-hmm. um and it is really strange how yeah you can kind of use this to um for example, one of the suggested applications of this is that you could use it to image delicate objects, for example, because you can work out that they're there without anything interacting with them. And um, mm. it's really weird that you can do that. And what what's quite cool about this this paper is that, um, so it was proposed by Elitzer and Weidman, two physicists, and um, mm. Weidman, yeah, I think it was coming from Weidman that there was a suggestion in the paper that this was um that this really is paradoxical the idea of detecting the bomb with absolutely nothing interacting with it and that actually this thought experiment is evidence for a many worlds interpretation because there must be if you're in a world where the photon hasn't interacted with the bomb then there must be another branch in the universe where the photon did interact with the bomb or was absorbed by it and caused it to explode and that that has to have physically happened somewhere in the universe in order to explain how you're able to get any information about the bomb without having interacted with it because it would have exploded Mm. if a single photon interacted with it so um yeah like whether or not you find that convincing i find it very cool that um that this thought experiment can provoke such a kind of intense conclusion yeah. in that this may be like a genuine paradox with collapse theories by some some arguments. Yeah, I, I think that to me that that argument uh, suggesting that this is a paradox seems to re- 
kind of as we warned before, it seems to rely a little too much on classical reasoning. You know, oh, you can either you can either send a photon to interact with the the bomb or you can't, right? Whereas that's it's like we we wouldn't be particularly surprised if we just like you know sent sent this photon off on a beam splitter um, and put the the bomb in the the way of one of those parts and not in the way of the other one. You know, we would say, well, there's a there's like this fifty fifty chance, but it it yeah, I guess it's. To me, it seems like, well, there's no paradox, right? Because it's, it's just that that's the sort of, that's the way that quantum mechanics works. And uh, if we if we try and use our classical intuition again, uh, then we run into problems. But I don't know, it's, uh, it, it is fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I think the essence of the strangeness is that, yeah, I guess the, the question posed is like, if I have this object and I've somehow retrieved information about it, but I haven't mm. affected that object at all, then mm-hmm. that's the kind of the root of what seems paradoxical. Like, how could you retrieve information about it with absolutely no effect on it? But, um, yeah. Yeah. but yeah, I see what you're saying, that it seems like, okay, well, that's just what quantum mechanics says. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but I definitely, it does still feel, um, as you're saying, it does feel paradoxical, yeah. Uh, it's just difficult to know to what extent we should trust our intuitions when it comes to these like paradoxes. Yeah, I mean this this idea of uh, the interaction free. So yeah, it's kind of known as interaction free measurement, um, and mm-hmm. yeah, it leads to some strange things when applied to other. It's been kind of extended to this. Um, for example, uh, there's counterfactual quantum communication, where the idea is that let's say we have like. Campbell and Brian are trying to communicate um, using a... um, The idea is that you might be able to communicate just by having the the possibility of sending a photon from Campbell to Brian, but not actually having to physically send it by using a similar idea of, like, yeah, somehow it can be arranged that you never actually need to send that that photon wow. physically through as long as there's the potential for, for sending it. School children everywhere trying to avoid their homework just perked up. <laughs> there's the possibility that you can you can do your homework that's just as good as already done it, doing it. <laughs> yeah. This is one of those topics where there's like paper after paper responding to each other on different sides of, of this topic because one paper will be out saying like this isn't real counterfactual communication because there's some little trace of the right. photon somewhere. And then the next paper will come out <laughs> saying, actually, there's no trace of the photon. And then they'll kind of argue about what counts as having a, a small trace <laughs> of the photon and whether it's really this bomb tester style yeah. um, thing going on. So it's all a bit messy. But um, ultimately, the idea is that if this is fully possible, then you might be able to like send a message with nothing... Um, they weren't eavesdropping on your message because they, hmm. if there's no photon for them to, to capture, then they can't hear what you're saying or intercept mm-hmm. your what you're saying. So yeah, I think it's a, a conceptually cool idea, but I'm I'm not well versed on the the details. There seems to be something that uh, maybe links this with the previous uh, thought experiment, uh, which maybe maybe I am going to. Um, misrepresent one or both of them by trying to draw this link. But 
you know, in the in the bomb tester case, there's this sort of 50, there's this superposition, right? And in one branch of the wave function, a measurement occurs, whereas in the other one, no measurement occurs. And the sort of result of that in, in some way is that you can somehow sort of perform a measurement without having to actually perform the measurement. Um, and in the other one, it's like the we've got this quantum object, which is the observer in the lab along with their quantum coin. And the the quantum object sort of performs a measurement and then gets some information back without like uh, some information back without like communicating that to the outside world. So it's it's sort of like this this you know try it, it's all it feels like this uh, kind of boundary between measurements being fully classical and you know uh, destroying the quantum nature of the um, of the system. And measurements being just uh, just another quantum interaction where, you know, we, we can think of a um, one particle sort of measuring, quote unquote, another particle uh, by just sort of interacting with each other, but they still are describable with quantum mechanics. It's sort of this like strange middle ground between these two extremes. I'm trying to suggest that there's like it, it they both kind of play in this middle middle ground between measurements being reverting the quantum system to a classical system and measurements just being another quantum interaction between constituents. Yeah, I think that this point is at the core of like almost every quantum paradox that right. we tend to think of, or the, the kind of um, well-known thought experiments that are, that are around in quantum mechanics. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, I kind of had that realisation as I was... Because um, yeah, like I said, I have nine paradox videos upcoming and I made five and I just kind of realized as I was writing all these scripts like I'm literally doing the same thing in every video which is saying like they're all in very different contexts all kinds of different situations but ultimately almost every one of them comes down to saying look if we treat the measurement device as a quantum system and treat the measurement as a quantum interaction then everything's fine and um (laughs) And this, yeah, this happens in lots of different contexts, like the Schrodinger's cat example, this um, yeah. observer in the lab, the bomb tester. It happens in, there's one called Wheeler's Delayed Choice Quantum Eraser, um, has mm. a similar solution. The double slit experiment is also well known that has a similar solution. Mm. Entanglement, quantum teleportation. Yeah, most of them have this idea at their core, but kind of in very different um contexts but yeah when you ultimately abstract everything else away about what the the story of the thought experiment is and just look at what's actually happening to let's say the the qubits that you're using to model the the thought experiment it's always kind of resolved by um by treating this measurement as as a quantum interaction between quantum systems um so yeah it's kind of fun like the the last video is on um quantum time loops which are kind of like oh, cool. um yeah the the technical term is closed time like curves so mm-hmm. yeah essentially contemplating whether if time travel is consistent with quantum mechanics and what happens when you you have loops in time with with quantum mechanics and um and i quite like that one cuz it actually um yeah, it goes beyond this whole, like, everything's fine if we turn measurements into <laughs> quantum interactions, because then 
when we try and think about time loops, we actually need to think about like new new physics beyond standard quantum mechanics and actually yeah. things become like genuinely beyond the the kind of standard quantum mechanics whereas the the other things are kind of like actually standard quantum mechanics is is fine um <laughs> but yeah the the measurement thing is definitely the underlying core of a lot of apparent paradoxes yeah super interesting this is this is something that i've or uh, that has I guess bothered me a little bit with with many worlds. I guess is that to explain my thinking, the the sort of close time like curves, um, and this kind of bringing in extra physics reminded me of um, the gravity discussions that we were having before. And this is, I guess, maybe where it seems to me that many worlds kind of goes a little bit beyond an interpretation and into a theory, um, just like the objective collapse theories go beyond interpretations. Because if we sort of take it seriously that that there is no collapse, that all quantum systems remain sort of in some branch of a, of a large global wave function, then you sort of have to take it seriously that gravity is also quantum, and and can form superpositions just as just as well as anything else, right? And then that really goes beyond anything that is is proven, right? That's sort of that's like an extra assumption on top of uh, on top of what we currently uh, have reason to believe. Yeah, so that that is a good um, a good point, and yeah, it is related to a cool thought experiment, which um, is not one that has appeared in my videos because it's mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know how you seem. Well, yeah, it's, there's there's a thought experiment to to test for non classical features of of gravity that um, my supervisors proposed, Vladka and Kiara, um, which is to yeah, it's essentially based on this idea that if gravity has quantum features, then if you, um, yeah, if you put a mass in a supposition of two different locations, then gravity should um, then be in a supposition of those two different locations as well, because the mass mm -hmm. will have a force of gravity in those two different locations. And um, yeah, you can essentially do um yeah the the thought experiment here the gist of what you do is that you imagine that you let's say you isolate two um masses so that the only way that they could interact is through gravity and you essentially check if you start off with those masses not being quantum entangled and then mm. you let them interact the only way they can interact being gravity and then you check if they have become entangled and if they've become entangled then the only way they could have interacted was by gravity and from that you can argue that um you can show you can prove that gravity must have some non-classical features in order to enable that entanglement to to be generated between the two masses um so that's a really cool uh, thought experiment for testing between these kind of uh, proposals for for gravity between um, yeah the non-classical gravity ones and the the yeah. classical gravity. Yeah. So I mean, maybe at some point in the near to medium future, we might be able to test these these claims. Yeah. There's lots of yeah. people trying to trying to work on kind of uh, scoping out what what these experiments would take to to physically implement them which would be really cool yeah yeah maria i this is a 
hopefully not as loaded question, but given the, the content you create and given what you study and work on, I, I feel like we're also, you know, generally speaking, culturally, there's never been more like mass media that has dealt with quantum realms and multi-worlds. And I'm wondering, like, does that make your job as a communicator easier in the sense that everybody has some kind of fundamental notion or does the fact that there's this fundamental notion out there make your job that much harder because you maybe need to break that notion down Uh, i'm just kind of curious how how you tackle that or if it's even something that you wrestle with or contend with when you're writing a script or something yeah it's an interesting question i think um i mean it's kind of useful that schrodinger's cat has kind of come into the popular consciousness because i like to to use it as a way of kind of introducing what i'm gonna say because i can be like oh have you heard of schrodinger's cat like that's what i'm working on like i describe it as like more complicated versions of schrodinger's cat that i can expand into as much detail as as that person is is interested to to hear about so that's kind of useful as a starting point because i feel like starting with like did you know that things can be in two places at once can be like really strange for someone who's not heard of that notion at all and also quite boring for you to have to explain every time (laughs) yeah i mean yeah i don't know it's kind of uh yeah on the flip side it's kind of fun explaining things like the bomb tester that most people have not heard of because you kind of get to start with a clean state slate in a way and um build up to the interesting ideas without, I guess, dealing with preconceived ideas about what's happening. Um, Right, right. But uh, yeah, I think every person, I guess, has very different background, a different level of knowledge about it. I guess I have some some general things which it feels like everyone thinks about them a certain way. And I kind of wish that we had more popular science explaining them a different way, because it feels like a slightly flawed idea has entered the the popular consciousness. I, I think that there's two of these that that come to mind. Um, one of them, which has come up in this conversation, is the the idea of the Copenhagen interpretation being like a kind of. I think it's often thought of as the sensible interpretation or explanation of of quantum mechanics. And when you actually look into it, like people disagree about what the Copenhagen interpretation actually is. And then you have to go more specific than that. And then people are much less comfortable defending specific versions right. of it than, I don't know. I feel like sometimes it's used to kind of say like, oh, everything's fine. Like Copenhagen interpretation, that's the sensible thing, right? But then it's not actually, um, yeah, it's not actually a, a worked out interpretation. It's more a, an umbrella word. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, the other thing is, which hasn't come up um, in this video, but is maybe a, a story for another time, is the um, the spookiness of, of entanglement being that you, if two quantum objects are fully, are, are entangled, then doing something to one of them has some kind of instant influence on, on the other one. And that's a very, um, that's an idea throughout like popular explanations of quantum mechanics and amongst scientists as well and for a long time I didn't know that there was actually an explanation of quantum mechanics without any of this instant action between Mm. one part of the universe and the other and when I found that out I was like oh like 
why doesn't everyone know about this? <laughs> yeah, so they, those are the two things that, that I would, would like to shift the popular view, view on, if, if I could. <laughs> are, when, you're, when you're watching a TV show or a movie and these ideas come up, are, are you able to, to t- kind of flip a switch and just enjoy stuff, or are you you're just always going with this? Yeah, I think if it's, um, if it's fictional, then I'm completely fine with that. Like, if... Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, if the the word quantum is being thrown around in some fictional thing, then it uh, it doesn't offend me if the science isn't right because I, <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah, I don't really have a particular view that the science should be all right in a in a fictional thing. Although, um, right. yeah, sometimes I wish that maybe some of the more interesting aspects, say, like for example, some. I guess a lot of popular um, fictional media might use the word quantum or talk about quantum and kind of use it as a a way of um, either maybe talking about a really fast computer that just does the same things that a classical right, computer right. does, but it's like super fast or something and they'll say it's quantum or they'll use it as a way of having like many worlds in, in the story. Um, but uh, I kind of feel like the idea of many worlds isn't as it's not like the characteristic thing of quantum mechanics because you can also get that from lots of theories of cosmology there are lots of theories of of many worlds and that there are kind Mm, of ways that many worlds um i mean people have been thinking about the idea of many worlds for a very long time long before quantum mechanics and i kind of feel like if uh if you're going to draw on quantum mechanics as inspiration for fiction there are probably cooler things you can do um do with it sounds like sounds like a challenge you're challenging <laughs> the creative community that's a very good yeah. point yeah there's a few creative quantum competitions out there like the quantum shorts that cqt in singapore run i think it alternates between a story and a video based on quantum fiction i think uh yeah people get creative with with quantum things in in this which is is fun that sounds very cool brian your, your question made me uh, remember watching avengers endgame in in cinemas of a few years ago because <laughs> i was just thinking well it it, it yeah. can actually you know uh being familiar with some commonly used terms can make you know uh popular media even more entertaining because in that movie they say something like uh, I think they throw around the word EPR paradox at one point, which is, you know, that's a thing. Don't know what it has to do with time travel, but um, and then at some point they say, oh, we have to work out the eigenvalue of the Mobius strip, which is the most hilarious combination of words I've ever heard. <laughs> it's like, what does that mean? <laughs> just some funny, just some some mathsy sounding words they throw in. <laughs> anyway, but uh, yeah, sorry to derail. <laughs> Yeah, well, thank you very much for, for joining, Maria. Um, yes, thank you so much. I'm very much looking forward to seeing those those nine extra Paradox videos. I'll be keeping a keen eye out for those. Cool, yeah, thanks um, for the fun discussion. Yeah, um, cool. Well, we will, yeah, I'll hand over to Brian to, to wrap it up. Well, yeah, thank you, everybody, once again, for listening. As always, thank you, everybody that has reviewed. Thank you, everybody that has left a star rating on your podcast app recently we got an email that uh campbell is among the top 20 
<laughs> physicists physics podcast uh, in australia <laughs> uh podcasting physicists yeah yeah thank you thank you so, so much. uh congratulations campbell let's uh, let's get him in the top 10 everybody uh maria anytime you want to come back and uh just you know give the world a piece of your your mind on the direction of time or or any of any other thought experiments that come your way we uh we are your stage so thank you very much you're welcome back anytime uh, Campbell, thank you as always, and especially for shouldering a lot of this one. Although I was piqued by the idea of, you know, being the sole host <laughs> with this quantum bomb test, but, uh, you know, so in some other worlds, it's all mine, but in this one, Campbell remains my co-host. So thank you. Uh, we will catch you next time, everybody here on question field. You've been listening to Question Field. Question Field is a Gain Media production and is produced by its hosts, Campbell McLaughlin and Brian Buchanan. For more information, please check us out on Instagram at questionfieldpod, on Twitter at questfieldpod, and on TikTok at questionfield. If you have a question you'd like to submit, or would simply like to leave a message, please send us an email at questionfieldpod at gmail.com. Recently, the James Webb Telescope discovered five new stars located in the review section of your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening.